Grab your Bibles with me this morning and turn to the letter of 1 John. You'll find that in the very back of your Bible, almost the very end, small letter that we've been blessed to be spending our time going through. We're in chapter 5 today. We'll be looking at verses 6 through 8. I want to look at our passage in its entirety and we'll give you some context for what we're looking at here as John continues to write to the beloved. 1 John 5, 6 through 8. This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Eight times in this section, John makes reference to testimony, to testify of what's been witnessed. It's almost like he's taken the position in a courtroom and is calling witnesses to testify to the essential fact that Jesus is indeed the promised Christ, the eternal Son of God, without beginning and the one who took on flesh and who died for his chosen people on the cross of Calvary. John's emphasis was not only good for the Christians he's writing to in that day, those who were being bombarded, as we've seen so far in the letter, with all kinds of false testimony, false teachers, antichrist, people who were bringing perversions of who Jesus was to bear and trying to um, pervert and confuse um, but, we, but for us too today, God ordains His Word for us to know and to have and to study that we too would be helped um, to be reminded of these essential truths of who Christ is amidst those who would want to pervert these truths in our day um, and you know, who hold really grossly unbiblical beliefs about who Jesus is and, and what He came to do. Um, and so it's important because we have to get Christ right. You can't just have in your testimony the name of Jesus and, and, and then talk about this figure who's not who God revealed him to be. That's something different. It's not enough. We must have a right testimony. We have to get Jesus right according to Scripture. If we get him wrong, we get everything wrong. It all hinges on Christ. Especially because Jesus is the object of our faith, our salvation, the, 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 the critical centerpiece. Without Christ alone, we have no hope. And throughout sinful generations, man has thought and taught that we could bridge the great chasm between us and God through other means through righteous living or whatever we might have come up with, other even religious practices that are outside of what he's revealed to us in his word. Uh, You have the heresy of the Roman Catholic Church who held strong, continues to hold strong, that Christ's work is good, but in addition to that is man's inherent righteousness And also that there are other mediators that one could interact with in the Roman Catholic Church to to get to God, interact with God. And so these are are falsehoods that are outside of Scripture. The very Protestant Reformation was to call that to account. Those are unbiblical practices. Those are ideas that the Roman Catholic Church has raised up and built for themselves. Extra-biblical things that must be called out. And so... No matter how it's being attacked, we have to get Christ right according to Scripture as God has revealed him. It is in Christ alone that we must trust in, not Christ plus something else. Christ alone. And it's in Christ alone that we must testify of. Christ alone. This essential doctrine of the Protestant Reformation, and it remains critical for us today. Um, when you consider the major moment of Protestant Reformation that happened in society 500 plus years ago, uh, we stand on the, on the amazing work and lives that were given 
to, to, to reform back to biblical standards. Um, and one of those key components in what we refer to as the five solas is the, the, the sola of Christ alone. Um, solus Christus. That doctrine of Christ alone emphasizes that only through the person and work of Jesus Christ alone can one be saved. Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and men. Jesus' sinless life and substitutionary atonement alone are sufficient for our justification and reconciliation to the Father. No human merit or good deeds performed by us are sufficient to satisfy the righteous justice of God's wrath due sinners. Rather, salvation is solely based on the passive and active obedience of Christ alone, whose atoning death on the cross is the only sufficient substitute for those sinners whom he came to save. We don't add something else to Jesus. I got Jesus over here, I got these other things over here, and this is how I'm making it all work out. Praise God for Christ, our Savior, our Lord, our Mediator. Praise God for God's Word to, to illuminate our understanding, to teach us what we need to know about these things so we have a right view of who Jesus is, what He did and didn't do. And so I ask you this morning, all that by way of introduction, to really join me in the courtroom. It's not literal, but in the way that John kind of calls these witnesses to testify. And let's hear their testimony, and what is he pointing out, and why is this so important? These witnesses are three in total. They are the water, the blood, and the Spirit. Look with me at the opening part of our text in verse 6. 1 John 5, 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. So what is it that we're talking about here? How does water have testimony? How does blood have testimony? And so, and why is it not water only, but water and blood? Why is that important? These are all questions we have to answer to rightly understand this text in the context of this whole letter as far as how God's given it to us. Water refers to physical life. It's connected to Jesus' life. The fact that God the Son, who is eternal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, God the Son took on flesh, incarnated. He, born of a virgin, he conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. He took on flesh to live among us, to have a life and a ministry, to do a work that we needed done without which we have no hope. When we look to the water here, and the symbolism or the testimony of the water, there, there's really two components. There's, there's the way you could really look at Jesus' life in totality. So it's, it's a way to look at his birth, the fact that Jesus took on flesh, and the miracle of that. And also... There's reference by the historians and the, and the commentators also say there's, there's sweet reference here of his baptism. And I'm going to circle back to that, why many theologians include that in the thinking of what John is, is arguing for here. But let's consider his birth first. And Jesus' own words in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, a very famous interaction that Jesus is having with a Jewish a leader named Nicodemus. He says in John 3, 5-6, through 6, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. I can't get into all of this text, although it's magnificent, wonderful. It's on our podcast. I preached all the way through John's Gospel for a number of years. It's a great journey. But to get to it quickly, Jesus is stressing here that you must have two births if you are to be reconciled to the Holy God. One by water, that is our physical birth, when we're born of the womb, 
and one by the Holy Spirit, that is our spiritual birth, that you can be physically alive and spiritually dead, spiritually enslaved, Scripture would speak to it, bound by your sin, not discerned, not in harmony with the Holy Spirit, not serving the Holy God. We must be spiritually reborn. That is salvation. That is new birth. John's reference to the testimony of water is to the point that is to point to Jesus' physical birth, his life, his incarnation, his ministry. John has already spoken of this clarity earlier in this very letter, 1 John chapter 4, 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. How was the love of God made manifest among mankind? That God sent His only Son into the world. That Jesus, God the Son, eternal, took on flesh. God sent His only Son into the world. God the Son arrives on the scene. The birth of Christ, the life of Christ. But that fact is not to be quickly embraced and then moved on. I mean, He put on flesh. He lived among us. He was tempted, Scripture says, in every way as we are, and yet without sin. And that is really good news to us because we needed someone to do that. God fulfilled His promise set forth at the fall of mankind all the way back to Genesis 3.15. Proclaimed to Satan himself that a Redeemer would come from the womb of the woman and defeat the enemy. The promised Redeemer that generation after generation is waiting for has arrived, has come. This is the magnificent power of the Incarnation. Incarnation. This is why Christmas is so truly special. Not all the temporal things that we love about it, while great, fall far short of the miracle of God the Son taking on flesh and what that means for us. The birth of Christ. Church, we must never lose sight of the wonder, the power, the fact that God the Son put on flesh and showed up. What, what does it mean that He showed up? I mean, I, I said this before, you've surely been in a really hard situation in your life and someone showed up and it meant a lot to you when they did. What God did for us in Christ showing up in the flesh brings new meaning to what showing up is when we understand it rightly. Especially when we understand our condition outside of Christ, outside of salvation, that we were damned, we were deserving of God's wrath, we were deserving of His righteous judgment on sin because He's holy, He will not compromise His holiness to fellowship with that which is what's given to sin. We deserved His wrath, but He showed up to come save His people. To save many of us. God showed up in a way that redefines it. Just as He promised He would. Jesus came. Even though He knew He would be disrespected throughout His life. Mocked. Live a simple life. Be arrested. He knew He'd be tortured. He knew He'd be murdered. That He was coming to do this to save His people. Came to do this so that he could conquer death on our behalf, so that he could rise from the grave on the third day, so he could be the forerunner of resurrection. Jesus lived his life so that we could know the love of God now and forever. Outside of Christ, you only know the wrath of God. You don't have fellowship with the Holy God. You are rightly separated from him. Only in salvation, saving faith with Christ, unity to Christ, are we forgiven, are we reconciled to the Holy God. Now again, like I said earlier, many commentators and theologians will also point out the the reference to water. The testimony of water related to Jesus is that of his life to substantiate that he did indeed live, but is also of sweet reference to his baptism, his water baptism, whereby... God the Father declares, This is my Son, with whom I am well pleased. The Eternal Son is vouched for there. The Holy Spirit is unseen to vouch for that. We're going to talk about that later. Jesus' formal ministry begins with His baptism. Age roughly 30 years old. You might be wondering, how then is this related to testimony? It's related in the fact that Jesus was on the scene. 
that there is a testimony to give. The water is the testimony. In other words, Jesus is not a mythical figure spun up in the minds or imaginations of man. No, no, no. God the Son took on flesh, walked and lived historically among us. He showed up. He came to do what He said He would do in order to save us. This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Let's look at the second witness to testify. That is not only the life of Christ symbolized in the water, but the death of Christ symbolized in his shed blood. Blood refers to the death of Jesus on the cross, where he appeased the wrath of the Father for the sins of God's people. Before I get into the essential work of Jesus to shed his blood in our place, let me give you a little context. The dispute in that day, as John's penning this letter, was those who were the false teachers, those who were anti-Christ, promoting false doctrines among the beloved, among the brethren at that time, Many of them were saying, okay, we'll concede that Jesus lived. His ministry was real. But we will not concede that he is the Messiah who died because the Messiah would not die. They essentially embraced the testimony of one and not the other. John is saying that can't work. That is heresy. That is falsehood. That that is not What we've been taught, that's not what Jesus did to say that the life of Jesus is somehow active, but the death on behalf of sinners is somehow denounced. That's why John is saying, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. His life and his death are critical components of the doctrine of Christ, the ministry of Christ, the work of Christ. John's point of clarity is that we have the testimony of the water, the life of Christ, and the blood, the death of Christ. To deny either is to deny the one true Christ. You cannot follow them or that teaching. It's unbiblical. It's not what Jesus came to do. This is the loving correction, protection He's bringing to those that He's being given an opportunity to write to. Just as I'm trying to preach it faithfully to you here today. Jesus did not take on our human nature at his birth. I'm sorry, if Jesus did not take on our human nature at his birth or our sins at his death, we cannot be reconciled to God. One without the other is insufficient. Now, if you remember, again, John has already highlighted in this very letter, 1 John, the essential work of the blood of Jesus to forgive guilty sinners. Look back with me at chapter 1, 1 John 1, verse 7. Let me remind you what we saw there. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. The Apostle Paul also emphasized the life-altering work of the blood of Jesus to draw near those who were far off because of sin guilt Ephesians 2.13, Paul says, Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Brought near by the blood of Christ. Because of Christ's blood, we are now part of God's redeemed people. Brought near, brought in, adopted, part of His family. We belong to Him. If you look later in that very chapter, the Apostle Paul Builds on that thought in Ephesians 2, 17-19. He, Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This is the beauty of the makeup of the family of God, the household of God. It's the beauty of the makeup of our very church. Young and old and rich and poor and of different ethnicities and different upbringings, different experiences, different sin struggles. Surrounded by people in the room who have done wicked, revolting things that they've been forgiven for because of the blood of Jesus and made new and adopted into this family. And we are one. 
And we are redeemed by him. And this is our family, not just now, but forever. And we praise God for that. Hmm. This is good news. Because we're no longer spiritual orphans. Much of mankind seems content in their physical life to live their days, work their jobs, raise their kids, do their thing. And are ignorant to a spiritual reality. Not spiritual as in like hippie spiritualism, man-made spiritualism. But the the real spiritual reality that those who are still dead in sin and apart from Christ do not have and only those who are illuminated by the Holy Spirit have eyes to see and ears to hear, a love for God, a a connection to God because of Christ, because of the work of the Holy Spirit. We're going to come back to that later in this very text. We're no longer spiritual orphans. We who belong to Christ. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer without hope. We're no longer without spiritual family. No, we are redeemed. We are adopted. We are forgiven. We are brought near to God and His eternal family. My deep hope and prayer this morning is for those of you whom God has saved. He's given you saving faith. That you truly appreciate what God has done to not leave you alone in your sin, in your guilt, but to forgive you and make you new and make you a part of his eternal family. This is a change that is of the greatest effect of anything else you've ever gone through. To change this inside and out and up and down. Praise God that he brought us into his family, that we're blessed with his written word, that we're blessed with shepherds to love us and lead us, that we're blessed with Brothers and sisters in Christ, to encourage us, pray for us, walk with us, hold us accountable to God's good truths. But we must see the costly price of our rebellion and that it must be paid if we are going to experience atonement, forgiveness, reconciliation with God, unity with the the brethren of the family of God. What is that costly price, according to Scripture? And the answer is blood. Blood symbolizes life. To be without your blood means to be dead. The penalty of our sin must be paid with death, Scripture says. Uh, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. I earn death because of my sin. Death must be paid if forgiveness for sin is going to happen. Blood must be shed if reconciliation between the once former guilty sinner and now reconciled child of God to God, there must be reconciliation. And so blood must be shed, but not just any blood. Scripture is clear. Before we look to, to that Let me just point out quickly that this has been God's plan from the beginning. He promised that the fall of man, a Redeemer to come. But for generations in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, God put a system in place in the Old Covenant that was temporal. And it had practices. And those practices were not meant to be salvific and complete. They were meant to point to the only one who can make them salvific and complete, Jesus They served a purpose for a time. We're given a quick glimpse of this in the New Testament letter, Hebrews chapter 9, 19 through 28. It says this, For when every commandment of the law had been given, had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of the calves and the goats and with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled the blood with the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Then verse 23, thus it was necessary for the copies of the things of heaven, those 
elements of the temple and of worship and the priest and all of the elements of the old covenant worship is what that's referring to. They're copies of the heavenly things. They're temporal for a time. Copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So again, the practices of the Jewish people in the Old Covenant were for temporal appeasement with God and each other. They were copies. They were types. They were, they were, they were not complete unto salvation, unto reconciliation with God. They're setting the table for what was needed. And then here the author of Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24, enters the answer. For Christ has entered. Not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Come, Lord Jesus, come. The old covenant priests were instructed in, in a repetitive way to offer the sacrifice of the spotless animal on behalf of the people. The spotless animal, the best of the animal, had to be killed. Its blood had to be shed. There had to be a cost, a sacrifice, to pay the price of the sin. The animal dies as a substitute at the hands of the high priest. But this, again, as Scripture is clear to teach us, was a temporal redemption appeasement for those under the old covenant. They were only promised temporal blessings Temporal blessings. Why? Because it all pointed to Jesus. Because not any blood would do. Only the blood of Jesus that's brought forth in the new covenant brings the elect of God past, present, and future into eternal reconciliation with God now and forever. Notice how the author of Hebrews uses the, says the old covenant way included things that were copies of heaven. So again, those were types and shadows that pointed to what we call the anti-type, the actual real lasting sacrifice, Jesus himself. Hebrews 10.4 makes it clear, it is impossible for the blood of goats and bulls to take away sins. No, only Jesus could make an offering with his blood that was complete and lasting. Some I've heard over the years look me in the eyes, sometimes with tears in their face. I've done such wretched things. There's no way I could be forgiven of that. And I just lovingly want to help them see that's an indictment that you're making on, on Jesus. What you're saying right there is that the Holy Christ is insufficient and unable to pay for your worst sins. That Don't say that. He is more than able to pay for your worst. His blood is sufficient. He is God the Son, eternal, perfect and without sin. How are my past, present, and future sins forgiven by the blood of Jesus? Why do I not need to go back to the altar again and again, offer atonement and say Hail Marys and do all this other stuff? Because Jesus declared on the cross, it is finished. We don't, there's not something to be done again and again and again. Why? Because Jesus' blood is sufficient. Through the blood of only one 
could pay for all our sins, past, present, and future. Who could do this? God in flesh, eternally pure and without sin, Jesus Christ. The testimony of the eternal God, the Son, taken on flesh, is essential. That's the testimony of the water. The testimony of Jesus' blood shed for many is essential. The testimony of the blood. It's necessary if we are to be redeemed and brought near. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Romans 3.25 says, God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Only the God-man, as John says it in the beautifully written opening words of the Gospel of John, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John 1.14 Only the God-man, Jesus Christ, who, as Hebrews 4.15 says, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Only the Lamb of God. When Peter and the Apostle Peter, other eyewitnesses of Jesus, described how the Lamb would take away our sin, they used language like what Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So no amount of man-made payment, gold, silver, uh, no amount of man-made work can be an offering that is worthy of all of my sin being forgiven. Scripture says elsewhere, you're guilty of one of it, you're guilty of all of it. Again, please, if you're hearing this today, we don't get to rewrite how we think this should work. That, that is an act of great arrogance. God has made clear to us in His Word how this is and is to work. Our desire here is to submit and to understand the revelation of God as He's given to us in His Word. The glory of God. Jesus is that spotless Lamb. Jesus is what is required. He meets all of the requirements. Please hear me today. I'll say it again. You cannot be the lamb. You are not spotless. Only Jesus. 1 John 1.29, John the Baptist declares, Behold, speaking of Jesus as he walked near, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Praise God for the fact that God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. That's Romans 3.25. Church, we will simply not appreciate the full weight of this testimony unless you see the depth of the grace and the love of God and what he did to pay for our sins. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While you were still actively against God in all of your pride, in all of your self-righteousness, in all of your wicked ways, whatever description fits you, or all the above. In other words, there's a lot of people out there who think, I'm just going to get my life just tucked in just enough where what I'm presenting to God is good enough. This is good. I think what I am, what this is, is good. No. Can't. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. The fact that we didn't contribute anything is good news. The fact that we didn't have to get cleaned up is good news. Because we never will get to that. While we were his enemies, Christ died for us. I pray you see the sweetness of the Father's love and specifically his grace to give a gift that we're not deserving of. And what is that? That God the Son would put on flesh, live without sin, and die in our place to pay for our sin and rise again so that I could be reconciled to him and made new. 
I love the way it said in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Uh, I'll, I'll paraphrase that. The God of the Bible is not appeased by our best efforts, but only by His own blood. Jesus' blood. Now, and now it gets better. Not only did He take on our deserved wrath with His blood, but, but in this, I, I receive Jesus' righteousness. And therefore, God declares me righteous, not because I'm performing righteousness, but because Jesus' righteousness is laid on me. Right? This is what happened at the cross. Right? It's the great exchange, is what Luther referred to it as. All of my sin is put on Jesus, and He pays for it. He didn't, he didn't do any sin, but He takes mine on. It's laid on Him. All of His righteousness is laid on me. This is how the Holy God is able to see that the sin, the justice is met, the justice of God is met, the sin is forgiven, it's paid for, and He sees the perfection of Jesus on me and says, you're mine, you're in. It's not like a combination of here's the parts of Jesus that are my wardrobe, here's the parts of me. No, no, I got nothing. I got nothing to bring. It's all Him. So in this, Paul says in Romans 5, 9, that we're justified by His blood. We're declared righteous. We're declared justified by the judge, by the blood of Jesus. So see with me, the testimony of the blood of Jesus is game-changing, game-changing. It's His blood in our place that's the key to all of this. And this is, so this is extra. This is why at the Last Supper, at that last Passover meal, Again, what was the Passover? The Passover is God passing over the elect, those who put the Lamb's blood over the door at, at the, the judgment, the last plague that was put on Egypt, and all the firstborn were killed, right? And, and yet not those. The Holy Spirit passed over those who were God's people. So they celebrated that with an annual meal, the Passover meal, the Seder, to remember the grace of God, the deliverance of God, but more than that, not just to look back, but to have a way to essentially look forward to the promised Redeemer. The only one by which all of my sin is passed over in the fact that He atones for it. So at that meal, Jesus lifts the unleavened bread, He lifts the cup of wine, and, and He gives us the Lord's Supper. Matthew 26, 26-28. As they were eating, Jesus took bread after blessing it, broke it, gave it to the disciples. Take, eat, this is my body. He took a cup and he, he given it, after he given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. When God's old covenant people obeyed his commands, they had favor and blessing with God in temporary ways. The new covenant is the covenant that defines God's eternal people. And it is solidified in Christ's blood. That's how God's elect, both Jew and Gentile, both past, present, and future, all look with, save, with faith to the same Savior. Their salvation in Christ alone. That, that is the truth for all who came before us, even of the Jews. God's people are all saved through the finished work of Jesus on the cross and the shedding of His blood in the New Covenant. They looked forward, and we look back, professing faith in the same Christ. Jesus see the power in the blood of Jesus we have to see it. We have to see the power of the blood, church. We have to praise God for it. Ah, it's worthy of our praise. We were far off. We were brought near by the blood of Jesus, as Paul said. And this is truly a great gift. See with me. is We are dependent absolutely on His sinless life and His substitutional death in our place. To be saved... We need all of what Christ is in His righteousness and none of what we are. 
Christ alone perfectly and completely satisfies God's holy standard. That's the Reformed doctrine. That's the teaching of Holy Scripture. That's what the Reformers pushed back on the Roman Catholic Church who taught it's Jesus and your performance together. That's an unbiblical idea. It's a man-made prop that had to be Reformed. Christ alone is Savior. Christ's atonement alone. I bring nothing. His perfection is what's needed. And so if we get it, it's good news. It truly is good news. Why? Because then it's not up to me to perform. You don't have to like figure out how to jump through the obstacle course. I'm desperate for Christ. And if and when God gives me eyes to see and ears to hear, I will lay down my life. I'll trust my life to Jesus and I'll live for him the rest of my days. And he saves me. And so I just ask you, Christian, we sang it earlier. Is your hope built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We sing it. It needs to not just be a song I love, a great old hymn. It, it, is, it is our profession. It is our identity. It's our testimony. My hope is not in these temporary things, in my temporary body, my temporary circumstances. If it is... No wonder why I'm so depressed, why I'm so downtrodden, why I'm so defined by these things. No, no, no. My hope is in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And if it's there, then it's secure, then it's finished, then it's solid. That's what it means to be fixed on the solid rock. But that can't just be a lyric I love. Is that really who you are? And life is going to test this every day, all the time. Tested it for me, like I said, this last couple of weeks. Right? I'm 44. I, I'm starting to embrace the fact that I'm, I'm becoming an old man. I still think I'm a very young man. I do a lot of young man things. I was hitting the leg with a softball 100 miles an hour. It jacked my body. My body was all tweaked. Like, I don't get to do these things that I look forward to. I had all these things lined up on this weekend. I was going to have Thanksgiving on Father's Day. I love Thanksgiving. We should have it four times a year, not just one time a year. I was looking forward to all of it. I got to do none of it. And, and if my hope is fixed on something less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, then I'm bummed. And so many of you were encouraging me and sending me some notes. I, I love that. I'm thankful. And uh, our sister, Krista Ader, reached out and just encouraged me. One of the gals that Jennifer is running closely with these days and discipling, and, and she just was encouraging me and I was just sharing with her like oh there's so many things I didn't get to do this weekend I was so looking forward to and uh, but I told her back I said but I'm, I'm fixed on Christ like God's got me he's got a plan in all this so I was able to kind of speak gospel truth back to myself in what I shared with her and she said in reply she's like I get it if you know Krista's testimony she's going through some very serious life ailments potential leak in her spine that's created amazing uh, turmoil and hurt and pain and hardship and altering that family's life. And so she is, she's like, I get those days. I get it when those plans don't get to come together. And so I got to be encouraged by someone who immediately, when I read that, I go, oh yeah, you do. You get this. My, my stuff's lame compared to what you're going through. Right? I didn't go play in a golf tournament. I got to miss Thanksgiving meal in June. Like, you're, you're, you're in real pain, like all, the way, all this stuff. It, but there it is. There's that reorientation of God's truth to refix, to, to, to hold on to being fixed on the rock and not being undone by the, temporal, by the, by the temporary. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And so here's the next lyric in that song. Do you dare not trust in the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, that means the sweetest enticement, that big promotion, that new house, that, that, that final fix to your ailments that you've been going through, that overcoming whatever that hill is, the sweetest thing that you've been dreaming for. Like, I, I, don't, I don't even trust in that. I wholly lean on Jesus. See the fullness of that, church. Christ alone is what we need. Everything else is fleeting. Nothing else is promised to even get through the, this sermon. 
I'm still waiting for one of you to die in the middle of one of my sermons. It's going to happen if I preach long enough. I have a friend who had happened who was like, I was right there, he's dead. Not, not because he's a bad preacher. <laughs> this is time. I, we have no promise to, to live through this sermon, to, to get through the end of this day. We, our hope can't be in that. Right? I, I was sharing with some of you along the way, in, in the three-year journey of trying to adopt Piper, we were so in love with this girl. This girl is our daughter. She's not our daughter, but she's our daughter. I remember at some of those moments where we're threatened, like, this is going to not, I'm going to lose her, and, like, and just feeling that temptation to kind of be undone. And then, and then realizing, like, I think that if I just can get her adopted, then it's fixed, and she's mine, and we're good. And then I realized, Natalie could not live through today. Like, what, what am I clinging to to put my hope in that I'm not promised? So it helped me release putting my hope in, like, we've got to get this done. No, we need to trust God. We need to walk by faith and serve Him this day that He's given us and with this that He's put on our table. And we honor Him to steward it well. And we walk by faith and not by sight. Our hope is not in temporary things. We're not, we're not undone at the loss of those things. Our hope is in Christ. On Christ, the solid rock, we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Amen? Amen. If you are outside of all that, because while you're attending, you're studying with us, and I'm thankful you're doing that, keep asking questions, keep coming. You essentially are still the Lord of your own life. You, you have not surrendered your life to Jesus to be saved, to be baptized, to be a part of the church, to be committed, right? You, you know religion, or maybe you think you know God, or maybe you know the Bible, but, but you, you are still essentially the Lord of your own life. You're trying to do it your own way. You're trying to make your way the best you can. Just, just hear me. You can't. You can't make your own way. If and when God gives you spiritual eyes to see, and that could be today, that could be tomorrow, it's in His time. It's not something I can just tell you to repeat after me. It's not how it works, sadly. Many churches perpetuate that. When He gives you saving faith, you will confess your sin. You will be moved by the beauty of the gospel. And you, it will be your joy to die to self and to live your life for Christ and honor Him with the rest of your days. The scriptures call you to repent and believe and be saved. And so I lovingly implore that to you. To begin to wrap up, look with me at the third witness who testifies. Not only the water that represents Jesus' life and ministry, not only the blood that represents Jesus' sacrificial, substitutional death, but the spirit of truth testifies of Jesus as the Christ. Look at the second part of verse 6. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. What is the Holy Spirit's testimony concerning Jesus as the eternal Son of God who came to do His ministry on earth? What, how does the Spirit testify to that? Well, at the baptism of Jesus, we see this in a physical way. Matthew 3 16 through 17. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. God the Father and God the Holy Spirit are both at work at Jesus' water baptism to testify that he is indeed eternally God the Son, who has put on flesh, and come to do this work in ministry. The Holy Spirit in this puts His seal, His testimony. It's like the Holy Spirit's way of putting His seal on the, on the testimony of the water and the blood. In the similar way that the Holy Spirit puts His seal on those of us who profess faith in Christ, Paul spoke to that in Ephesians 1.13. Hear this one verse. In Him, Jesus, in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. 
So therefore, the presence, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is a regular sign and seal all throughout Scripture of those of us who truly belong to God. Jesus told us that this would be the Spirit's role in validating the gospel testimony. In John 15, 26, Jesus says, When the Helper, referring to the Holy Spirit, comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, notice the same reference in our text today, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. To bear witness is to give testimony. The divine work of God the Holy Spirit is to convey, convict, and concrete the absolute truth of God. He is the one who solidifies truth to God's people. He opens our eyes to the truth, includes He includes our wills to embrace the truth. He stirs our hearts to love the truth. A great brother in Christ, a faithful shepherd who has been here on this stage and preached to us, Ian Hamilton. Pastor Ian Hamilton from over the pond. He says it this way. John highlights here the supernatural character of the Christian faith. The gospel is more than acknowledging or confessing certain facts about Jesus, however orthodox or evangelical. It is God the Holy Spirit's ministry to work inwardly in our lives, opening the eyes of our understanding, including our wills, persuading our hearts to receive and rest upon Christ alone for pardon and acceptance with God. The famous Westminster Larger Catechism, question 72, says it this way. Justifying faith is a saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and Word of God, whereby he being convinced of his own sin and misery and of the disability in himself and all other creatures to recover him out of his lost condition, not only assent to the truth of the promise of the gospel, but receive and rest upon Christ and His righteousness, therein held forth the pardon of sin and for the accepting and accounting of His person righteous in the sight of God for salvation. Praise God for the work of the Holy Spirit to give us spiritual discernment and embrace for God's truths. Remember I told you earlier, I'm going to share this with you. Paul says it so well in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person, that's talking about someone who is still dead in sin, does not have the Holy Spirit. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You saw a lot of this this week. This is all those who heard about a ruling to protect conceived lives and no longer murder them. And these people called that disgusting. These people called that vile. They they called that terrible. Why? Because it's folly to them. Because they're not spiritually discerned. Because they lack the testimony of the Holy Spirit to work in their lives, to see the truth of God and embrace the truth of God. They're at war with God. All of this is essentially about being at war with God. Don't let it be about politics. It's way bigger than that. Christian, may we praise God for the the life of Christ, symbolized in the water, for the death of Christ, symbolized in His blood, for the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit, for these three amazing testimonies, solidify the truth about Jesus, who is the Christ, and blesses us forevermore. And so here, John's words in verse 7 and 8. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree. They agree to what? That Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah of long ago. 
He is the Christ that God said would come and redeem his people. That he is indeed eternally God the Son. When I keep saying eternally God the Son, that means that Jesus didn't have a beginning. That's heresy. God is three in one. Eternally God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And that he is the only one through whom mankind can be saved. This is what they agree on. The testimony of God's word and specifically the Gospels record the historic happenings of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And those who lived with Jesus, those who wrote those Gospels, they all agree. They stand in unity. Listen to how John made this point at the very opening of this letter. And I just want to continue to show you how the context of of a letter, as we study it, needs to continue to reaffirm, and we need to read this stuff in its context. So let's go back to the very beginning. If we're reading the letter, just flip back to the very opening words with me real quick. 1 John 1, 1 through 3. That which was from the beginning, speaking of Christ, which we've heard, which we have seen with our eyes, talking to people who have seen Jesus, which we looked upon, have touched with our hands, Concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we've seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, with, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ." In this opening statement of our very letter, it's like John swearing in a deposition. Jesus is God the Son eternal, is the Messiah, the one who came to to live and to die in the place of sinners. And he's saying, hey, you who I'm writing to, you've seen him. We've been with him. We've touched him with our hands. We've walked with him. That's so different than what some of us Or maybe all of us have been guilty of doing it one time. Where you saw a famous person once, like way over there, and then you tell everyone, oh yeah, I know that guy. (laughs) Right? It's like how much I know MC Hammer. I like yelled at him one time through a parking lot. It's the only thing I've ever said to that guy. I don't know MC Hammer. I yelled at him through a parking lot, right? That's not what he means here. They did life together. I didn't yell at him like I was trying to hurt him. (laughs) John is saying this in this letter to embolden his Christian brothers and sisters to not be persuaded by false teaching and to have a bright ongoing testimony. And that's, that's the call on us too, church. That we are to be a witness now. Jesus said to the apostles at that time in Acts 1.8, when you receive the Holy Spirit, you will be my witnesses. Locally in Jerusalem, in the region of Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. That's how the church spread. And then before he ascended in the Great Commission to the disciples and to us, the commission is... In the authority of Jesus, we are to go forth and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded us in His Word. We are to be His witnesses. Now, you might be thinking, okay, so these guys who read this and wrote this, they were with Him, so they were legitimate witnesses to have a testimony. I've never hung out with Jesus, touched him, talked with him, seen him physically. But you need to understand, if you belong to Jesus, if you're saved by Christ, then the gospel is your testimony. It is your, you are a witness of the life change of the gospel. You're not talking about what something else happened. You're not talking about that testimony in somebody else. It's yours. We have been saved. We have been transformed. We have been made new. We've come to see the movement of the Spirit and the work of God. And now we have a testimony to share with a watching world. And so be it. Colossians 1.28 Him we proclaim, 
warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Church, let our testimony be bright for those he puts in our path. Amen? Pray with me. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time together in your word to slow down and understand it in its context and to to dig into these symbols and, and all that you're intending to reveal here, not only to those to which John wrote, but to us continually in the perseverance of your written word. And we're just so thankful for the gift of it, and the, 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 the sweet blessing that this time together every Sunday is um, to, to study your word together. Um, may it be a catalyst to our time in the word throughout the week, that we wouldn't be satisfied with this one meal, spiritual meal. We would be hungry for more. This truth is transforming us, it's moving us, it's shaking us, convicting us. That we do real work, serious work, to take serious these things. We thank you for Christ, Christ alone, whom we profess and proclaim and testify of. We, we want to have a beautiful testimony of the gospel. And that it's by nothing but the blood of Christ that we are saved. So... God, do your work, not only in those in the room, but all those that you put in our path. Hear us now as we worship you. You are worthy of all of our lives. In Jesus' mighty name we pray.